Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 1 of our September-October 2020 issue. Let's get started. The COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting quarantine have affected everyone by now. But how are they transforming the delivery of mental health care? Go online to read a variety of perspectives on COVID-19, including first-person accounts from physicians in France, Italy, and India, as well as case reports and thought-provoking commentaries on how the pandemic is impacting psychiatry and mental health. These offerings are freely available online. To read them, visit us at psychiatrist.com and search on the keyword COVID-19. After acute symptoms are stabilized, all major schizophrenia treatment guidelines recommend ongoing antipsychotic maintenance treatment. It is essential, therefore, to examine the long-term safety of antipsychotic monotherapies to delineate the effects of treatment over time. This is especially true for long-acting injectable formulations, as there may be a concern about the relative safety of medications with long half-lives. Here, in an article freely available online, the authors report long-term treatment effects of aripiprazole-liroxyl, a long-acting antipsychotic. In two consecutive long-term safety studies sponsored by Alchemies, patients with acutely exacerbated schizophrenia were stabilized acutely on aripiprazole-liroxyl, 441 milligrams or 882 milligrams. Treatment was administered monthly, and patients were subsequently followed for up to three and a half years. No unexpected safety issues arose over the long term. Most adverse events occurred during the first few months of treatment, indicating that the risk of side effects does not increase with greater length of exposure. This finding is consistent with pharmacokinetic studies of aripiprazole-liroxyl, in which no evidence of drug accumulation was observed after steady-state aripiprazole levels were reached. The authors also report a post-hoc analysis of durability of response over two years of treatment using the 12-week score on the positive and negative syndrome scale, or PANS, as the baseline value to exclude symptom improvement after initial stabilization. Despite having fairly low PAN scores at baseline or week 12, patient scores improved by an average of 5.5 and 5.0 points, respectively, over 112 weeks. Safety and symptom trajectory findings were similar between dose groups, suggesting that for patients who have a good initial response, tolerability and efficacy of aripiprazole-liroxyl are not compromised over time. Omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, or PUFAs, are found in fish oil and are known for their presumed beneficial health effects. For example, during pregnancy and in the postpartum period, many women use these supplements with the goal of preventing or treating depressive symptoms. 
Although several randomized controlled trials have investigated the effects of omega-3 puffers on perinatal depressive symptoms, results were inconclusive. This makes it difficult for healthcare professionals to provide evidence-based advice on whether women should use them in the perinatal period. In a CME offering for this issue, researchers from the Netherlands combined data from 18 randomized controlled trials that studied effects of omega-3 puffers versus placebo on depressive symptoms in the perinatal period. This analysis included over 4,000 women. Overall, the data showed a significant small effect, suggesting that omega-3 puffers decreased perinatal depressive symptoms compared to placebo. However, the study showed important differences in outcomes that could be explained by population differences. Studies investigating pregnant women showed no effect of omega-3 puffers, while those investigating postpartum women showed medium to large effects. Moreover, studies in depressed women showed a medium effect, while studies in non-depressed women showed no effect with regard to symptom prevention. The authors conclude that their results advise against prescribing omega-3 puffers for treatment or prevention of depressive symptoms during pregnancy. However, they suggest that omega-3 puffers may be a promising add-on treatment option for postpartum depression. Visit us at psychiatrist.com where you can read this article in its entirety and earn CME credit. Also available online is an insightful commentary on the topic authored by Drs. Jerome Saris and Marlene Freeman. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are commonly used to treat children and adolescents with anxiety disorders, including generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD. Yet there is tremendous variability in response to these medications. In fact, 40% of youth either do not respond to these treatments or experience treatment-limiting side effects. There is therefore an urgent need to develop and test additional interventions and to identify which patients will respond to these treatments. To address this need, the authors of the present study evaluated the efficacy and tolerability of escitalopram in adolescents with GAD. They examined the impact of pharmacodynamic genes on response and the impact of cytochrome P450, 2C19, or CYP2C19 2C19 phenotype on escitalopram pharmacokinetics. In this trial, supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, the researchers treated adolescents with escitalopram or placebo for eight weeks. In addition, they examined variation in the HTR2A and serotonin transporter genes and cytochrome CYP2C19 phenotypes. Investigators found that escitalopram was superior to placebo in reducing anxiety and producing response, and the agent was well tolerated. Polymorphisms in the serotonin transporter promoter and HTR2A genotype, as well as CYP2C19 phenotype, were associated with response. 
Also, it is of clinical interest that CYP2C19 metabolism was associated with decreases in escitalopram exposure and that escitalopram exposure or blood levels predicted some side effects, including activation. The results of this study are consistent with other studies of SSRIs in pediatric patients with anxiety disorders, and escitalopram was associated with a number needed to treat between 3 and 4. Additionally, variation in CYP2C19 metabolism accounts for pharmacokinetic variation of escitalopram in adolescents, raising the possibility that CYP2C19 phenotype should be considered when prescribing escitalopram, given that patients who are slower metabolizers may require lower doses to achieve the same blood levels as normal metabolizers. In the pharmacologic treatment of depression, there is wide variation in both rate of dose increase and ultimate dose used in each antidepressant medication treatment step. Furthermore, how long one should use a medication before declaring failure in any treatment step is not well established. To address these questions, a secondary analysis of the National Institute of Mental Health-sponsored Sequence Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression, or STAR-D, trial was conducted. This report focuses on depressed patients who had minimal symptomatic benefit from their first selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and a medication switch for their second step. Second step treatments included venlafaxine extended release, sertraline, or bupropion sustained release. The medications did not differ in overall clinical benefit. However, only 20% of patients remitted and another 10% responded without achieving remission. Most troubling was that over half the patients had no clinically meaningful benefit despite the 12-week treatment trial and use of measurement-based care. Those with greater physical impairment and more concurrent psychiatric conditions were most likely to have no clinically meaningful benefit. Over one-third of those who responded or remitted did so after nine weeks of treatment. Therefore, the authors recommend a 12-week second-step medication treatment duration to ensure adequate time for response or remission. Patients with at least a 20% reduction in depressive symptom severity between baseline and week two were six times more likely to respond or remit than those below this threshold. The dosing interval of antipsychotics has traditionally been determined based on their peripheral half-lives, but the pharmacokinetics of antipsychotics are generally slower centrally than peripherally. The objective of the present study was to examine the extent of possible disassociation in pharmacokinetic decay between central dopamine D2 receptor occupancy with antipsychotics and their peripheral blood concentrations. To explore this issue, the authors conducted a systematic literature search and identified 18 studies on patients with schizophrenia spectrum disorders and or healthy subjects who were examined with positron emission tomography or single photon emission computed tomography. They calculated the ratio of percent D2 occupancy reduction rate from peak 
in relation to percent blood concentration reduction rate from peak. Nine oral antipsychotics and long-acting injectable risperidone and haloperidol were included in this study. With only a few exceptions, relative attenuation ratios were less than one across the time points for all antipsychotic types and doses, indicating a slower central versus peripheral attenuation. The ratio decreased in a dose-dependent as well as a peak D2 occupancy-dependent fashion. It contrarily increased in a time-dependent manner. These findings indicate that pharmacokinetic attenuation of antipsychotics was generally slower at the central versus the peripheral level. The results have two main clinical implications. First, dosing intervals of antipsychotics may be prolonged based on the central pharmacokinetics. And second, the concept of dopamine-related withdrawal or discontinuation phenomena may be at least in part challenged. This issue has significant clinical implication, and the authors conclude that more studies are necessary. Managing treatment-resistant obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, can be a challenge, but clinicians do have a number of options, including optimizing the dose and trial duration, switching agents, and augmenting with another medication. A recent ASCP Corner article that is freely available online looks at ways you can help your patients who have OCD. In closing, be sure to visit us online at psychiatrist.com to view the newest online offerings from Part 1 of the September-October 2020 issue and at cmeinstitute.com to explore interactive activities and earn free CME credit. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.